You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Father, again, we are thankful uh, that we have the word to study this morning together. And Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning. Father, help me to uh, communicate clearly. Um, Help me to communicate effectively and help me to communicate consistently uh, with what your word is trying to teach us this morning. And uh, so, Father, I pray that ultimately you would be honored, that you would be glorified, that we would be challenged, um, and that uh, we would leave here uh, with more truth than we came in with today to trust in, and that ultimately, Father, trusting in that truth would lead us to, uh, to live more obediently as we yield to um, the Holy Spirit's leading in our life, and we continue to uh, move away from yielding ourselves to sin. And Father, we pray for our sanctification this morning. We know that it's your will for our life, and so we pray for that this morning as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, these questions are not questions, statements. Again, we're meant to hopefully get us on a similar page starting off as we look at Romans 9. And since we're talking about points of agreement, then that's kind of an indicator of, of where I hope we are on these statements, that we agree with these statements um, no matter what theological system we might fall into, and we're not going to get into a whole lot of labels this morning, we want to we be consistent to the text, and we want to teach what the text has to say, and if that leads to systems somewhere down the road, then that's fine, um, but that's never what we want to be about really at Sovereign Hope. We want to embrace what the text has to say, and so um, looking at these statements, and we'll kind of pause for discussion if we need to on each one, God desires all people to be saved. Um, I think Scripture communicates that to us, so it would be hard to disagree with that because we would then be inclined to have to disagree with Scripture. The Bible says that he desires for people to be saved. He desires for all people to be saved. Number two, God could save all people, but God will ultimately not save all people. I would hope that we can agree with that this morning as well. I don't think that we have any uh, people who believe in a universalism-type stance in regards to the end times, that God could save all people. It's fully in his power. God could have constructed our universe, could have constructed his plan of salvation in such a way that everybody was saved, that in the end he gave everybody a second chance, revealed his glory, and that everybody submitted to him. He could have forced everybody to submit to him on the final day. So it was within God's realm, within his power to do that, but what we believe Scripture teaches is that's not how it will happen that not all people will be saved. Number three, some people will be saved for eternity. Some people will be lost for eternity. Again, I would, I would think and hope that everybody in here agrees with that statement, that in the end, what we've seen from Scripture as we've worked through First and Second Thessalonians, there's coming a day, a day where dividing lines will be drawn, and, and those that um, responded in faith will spend eternity with Christ, and those that did not will spend eternity separated from God in hell. Number four, people that are truly saved will remain saved until the end. Again, hopefully from what we've seen in Romans chapter 8, that God has started a process in us and he will finish that process. That he's always been working good for his children. He will always be in the business for working good for his children, all the way to the point of glorification where we get new bodies and we spend eternity with him. Um, 
Here at Sovereign Hope, we don't believe that people lose their salvation. We don't believe that people can opt out of their salvation. Um, So not that somebody accidentally could lose it. We don't believe that somebody can intentionally lose it either. That if someone is genuinely saved, the Holy Spirit will finish what was started. Okay. Number five, God knows who will be saved in the end and who will not be saved in the end. And as we work through this, there may start to be some deviation here in what we think and what we don't think together as a group. Um, So if you need to stop me on any of these moving forward, feel free to. Um, God knows who will be saved in the end and who will not be saved in the end. Um, I, I think we all believe in God's wisdom and knowledge and that God knows everything. And so if God knows everything, it necessitates that he knows who will be saved and who will not be saved. Number six, God's knowledge of who will and won't be saved was present before the world began and before man was created. Again, I believe he ceases to be God if that's not true. If God is waiting to find out something, then he's no longer omniscient. He's no longer all-knowing if he doesn't know everything. So God, before he ever created, knew how everything would play out. Uh, He knew who would be saved, who would not be saved. Um, Number seven, nobody that God thought was going to be saved will fail to be saved. Again, some of this is just restating what we're saying, but just to uh, give as much agreement this morning as we can get to. These these are things that we agree on, uh, that nobody surprises God. Right? Like nobody, it's not that um, God was really banking on King David being a follower of him and then King David didn't. Right? Like God doesn't, God's not surprised. So, so God knew that King David was going to be a faithful follower of him. Uh, God knew that Pharaoh was not. Um, God knew that uh, those that would be saved would be saved. And so none of us surprised God. He, he knew us before the foundations of the world uh, because he's all-knowing. And so none of us, God didn't wake up one day and, and uh, become shocked when he realized that I became a Christian. He wasn't, it wasn't that he was like, wow, like I wasn't expecting that. Like I was really thinking that Vincent was going to go a different way. And, and then all of a sudden he surprised me and got saved. That, that's not the case, Okay. Uh, number eight, nobody that God thought was going to be lost will end up getting saved. Um, number nine, therefore man's salvation, who will be saved and lost, is already determined. This is where we start to, uh, but if we agree with everything up to this point, then I think we have to say that that's true too. If God already knows it and there's no surprises, then what's going to happen is going to happen. That's been determined. What will happen will happen. There's not going to be any changes in the future. God's not waiting to see how this plays out. God knows how it plays out, okay? Um, Number 10, the Holy Spirit's conviction is necessary for a person to be saved. Now, you may not have thought about it before, but I think, again, we would all agree the Holy Spirit is a necessary component to salvation. Nobody gets saved unless there's conviction that has happened. And we know that Jesus says the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts the world of sin. And so the Holy Spirit is necessary to convict uh, people of sin. Number 11, the Holy Spirit does not convict everyone. Now this may be one that, that some of us would disagree with. Um, 
But my belief is that not everybody hears the gospel. There's people that died yesterday that never heard of Jesus, that, that never heard of salvation. And we've already worked through Romans 1, so we know they're accountable. We know they're accountable to the knowledge that they did have. Um, but as we're going to see in Romans 10, rarely, and on, on maybe some unusual cases, but even then, God doesn't save people without the Holy Spirit and without proclamation of the gospel from a human being. Now, there's some, some rare occasions there where um, angels showed up and said, you need to go find somebody. But even then, when Cornelius was told to go seek out Peter, it still necessitated Peter telling the gospel. The angel did not show up to Cornelius in the book of Acts and say, hey, you're not aware of Jesus. Hear who Jesus is. Get saved. He says, uh, you need to find out about Jesus. Go find Peter so Peter can tell you. So what we see is that God has planned it in such a way that people get saved by other people telling them. And Romans 10 is going to testify to that, that people can't hear and people can't get saved unless somebody tells them. And so what we're assuming then is that the Holy Spirit does not convict people to salvation unless somebody is, is being used by God to bring them to that point of proclaiming the gospel. So if that's necessary then we have to say the Holy Spirit doesn't convict everyone because not everybody hears the gospel. Number 12, for man to be saved and lived obediently, his desires must be changed. In and of ourselves, unless the Holy Spirit's working inside of us, I don't think we ever submit to Christ on our own. We're rebellious, sinful, children of wrath. And unless the Holy Spirit changes those desires, then, then we don't get saved. Think about it. We pray that way, don't we? Like we don't, we, don't, we don't just take somebody's choice on this matter and say, okay, so-and-so's chosen not to be a Christian. That's their prerogative. No, we pray intently. For those of us that pray for salvations, we pray intently. What do we pray? God, change their heart. Change who they are. Open their eyes to the gospel. Which necessitates what? That we expect the Holy Spirit to be the one to show up to do that. And I think we would all agree, it doesn't matter how good my presentation of the gospel is, unless the Holy Spirit is doing something on the inside, it falls on deaf ears. Hearts are hardened without the Holy Spirit. And so we pray from that perspective. We pray, God, I'm not content with so-and-so's decision. Change them. Change their heart. Make them want you. Make them desire you. Make them want salvation. Why? Well, we know it's good for them. So we don't see that as a violation of their free will, right? Like we don't, we don't pray that and thinking, well, they're free to choose, so I should just let them be free to choose. No, we say, I don't want you to be free to choose. I want God to change you. I want God to change your heart because I know what's good for you. I've seen it, and I want you to see it, and I'm not content with you being okay not to see it. And so we pray that way. And I've never met somebody who was unwilling to pray that type of prayer. Even people that get uncomfortable with some of the terms that we're going to have to look at today. Even people that are uncomfortable with those terms, they pray this way. God, change. Change my mom. Change my dad. Change my husband. Change those desires. Change their heart so that they submit to you. Number 13, man's salvation involves God choosing man. And then number 14, man's salvation involves man choosing God. 
And what I hope we see today and next week and the week after is that we can agree with both of these statements. That God obviously chooses man in such a way that he assures certain individuals that they will hear the gospel, right? So if God says, I know who's going to be saved, it also necessitates those people being born into a situation where they're going to hear the gospel. So there's there's an active choosing there by God to where he says, this will happen. I'm going to make sure this happens. We're going to talk more about this this morning. But then there's also, it doesn't, in saying that, it doesn't decrease the responsibility and the necessity for man to also then choose God. Because if that, if that wasn't a necessary component, then we wouldn't have history playing out this way where people are responding to God, people responding to God. If that wasn't a necessary component of man choosing God, we could just skip to the very end. We could just skip to the very end. But God plays it out because that is a necessary component for man to choose God. Okay, Romans chapter 9. I have two overwhelming tasks this morning. One is to teach you Romans chapter 9. The other is to teach you Romans chapter 9 where you walk out the door this morning loving Romans chapter 9 and not hating me for Romans chapter 9. So both are difficult tasks. One is more difficult than the other. I can get up here and teach Romans chapter 9. It'll be difficult. But the real difficulty is teaching it in such a way that you walk away loving the doctrines that are contained here and not hating them. Because most people, when they're initially exposed to this, hate it. Um, They hate it, and it it goes against what God wants to teach us this morning. And I want us to see the overwhelming purpose of salvation this morning. And I want us to see a God-focused salvation this morning that doesn't in any way violate his justice or his fairness. And even though we may leave with unanswered questions this morning, my hope is that we have a bigger picture of who God is and why he chooses to do the things that he does. Um, Because ultimately, I think Paul wants it to, to lead to a deeper, meaningful worship experience for us in this life. And I think that's why he seeks to communicate Romans chapter 9 to us this morning. So a couple of of initial thoughts that I want to give you before we really get into this. Number one, as glorious as the truths of Romans 8 are, we're left with the question, can we trust them? Okay, so we talked last week about there being no condemnation, no fear, no, no concern about death, that we'll never be separated from God's love. And these are all great promises, promises that that God is going to work everything for our good. And we want to believe those things. But as Paul starts off in Romans chapter 9 this morning, he says, I've got a concern. My concern is, can we really trust these promises in light of what we see happening with Jewish people? What he means by that is, God made promises to Israel, and Israel has rejected the Messiah And for all practical purposes at that time, and even I would say today, what we see around us is that the Jewish people are lost. The Jewish people primarily rejected this movement of Christianity. They were the ones that persecuted. They were the ones that that were uh, giving Paul such fits. They were the ones that ultimately were were responsible for putting Christ on the cross. They reject the Messiah and they're God's chosen people. And so Paul's concern, his question that he wants to answer 
um, is can we trust what we've just looked at in Romans chapter 1 through 8? A lot of commentators say it would be easy to jump right to, to chapter 12 here. Okay, we talk about glorification at the end of Romans chapter 8. Chapter 12, let's talk about what to do in the meantime. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. You could pull this out and seemingly not miss a beat. But Paul says, we got to stop for a second. Because I've told you to believe these promises, but in light of other circumstances, it looks like maybe there's some doubt that could exist there because it doesn't seem to be true for the Jewish people. It doesn't look like God's keeping his promises to the Jewish people. What do we do with that? Secondly, Romans 9 is primarily about whether God's word can be trusted. Number three, Romans 9 is going to be offensive to you if you believe God owes equal opportunity for salvation to everyone. Romans 9 is going to be offensive to you if you believe that God owes equal opportunity for salvation to everyone. Ultimately, what we're talking about this morning is what our souls value greatly, and that's our ability to freely choose what we want. That's, that's, a, that's a core value for us as a human being. We want the freedom to do what we want to do. And so if we're ever engaging in some type of concept that violates our ability to choose, we're resistant to that. We're resistant to authority because authority typically tells us what to do, and it may not be what we want to do. And so Romans chapter 9 confronts us in the face because it, 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 it starts to draw on this fact that maybe you don't have as much freedom to choose as you think that you do. Before we really get into that, I think it's important for us to look at what we mean by free will. What is free will, and can man act freely? Can man do what he wants? I want you to to ponder those two questions for a minute. What is free will? What do we mean by that? And can man act freely? Can man do what he wants? Or is there limitations placed on what he can do? Side note, you're never going to be satisfied with what Romans chapter 9 teaches on either end of the spectrum until you study it yourself. So so you just need to know that going into this, that it doesn't matter how good I present this, you're not going to ultimately be satisfied with Romans chapter 9 on either end of the spectrum until you study it yourself. Okay? When I was first confronted with the concept of God choosing uh, terms like predestination and election. I remember it very vividly. I was in uh, my freshman year of college at Liberty University. We were at the, um, the Marriott cafeteria eating lunch. I remember exactly which table we were at, and I remember how angry I was after lunch was over. I mean, I was ready to abandon my friends. I was ready to, to never speak with them again. I was so angry at this new theology that they were presenting to me, this concept of, of God choosing and, and predestining and electing. And I remember thinking, what are you talking about? Like, I've, I've, I have no concept of, of what you're describing here. Uh, and I left very angry with these individuals about it. And, and it, it, honestly, we were never the same from a friendship level ever again. Um, I hated 
the presentation of what they shared with me that day. But what it did do was challenge me that there were verses that I'd never looked at before. And so I began to study on my own. And even in studying on my own, I was resistant to what the Holy Spirit was teaching me because I still had such a hatred towards what I had heard at the lunch table that day. And the more I studied, the more I realized that I hated the presentation, but I didn't really hate the material. I hated the arrogance. I hated the pride. I hated this puffed-up knowledge and the belittling of me that was given to me because I didn't, I had not arrived or I had not elevated myself to this type of thinking before. And so I was very dissatisfied with the presentation. And it kept me from embracing the glory of who God is for longer than it should have. And some of you have been exposed to the concepts in Romans chapter 9 in a similar way. And it's made you resistant to what God's word teaches But if you step back and and, and examine what God's word says, examine these points of agreement, what you're going to find is you're dissatisfied with the presentation. It was presented to you arrogantly and pridefully because you didn't understand it and somebody else felt better than you because they did. And I think the more you study it, you begin to realize, I have to admit that what's being said is more true than I thought. And what really turned it off turned me off to it was how it was shared with me. And, and that was my experience. Coming back to this idea of free will and can man act freely. Um, any thoughts on that you want to share first? What, what do we mean by free will? Does man have the freedom to do what he wants? Any thoughts on that that you can share? I would say that, that man, from our perspective, acts freely. We make choices, you know, like, like I can pick up this pen and drop it. I chose to do that, right? Like, I wasn't programmed to do that. And yet, we have to admit that our, our choices and decisions are not completely free. That most of the time, what we choose is based on desires that we can't control. So a lot of people that want to really hang their hat on, well, man's free. Like, man has freedom. Man has free will. We have to admit that there's a lot of things that we don't have free will to choose. I can't choose to be fast, right? Like, even even if I were to train very hard, there are some people that are born fast. There's some people that aren't born fast. My dad told me all through high school growing up playing football, You'll never be fast. You can be stronger, you can be smarter, but you'll never be faster than the other guys. It's just not part of your DNA. We celebrate mothers today. There's not anybody in here that got to choose their mom. Some of us are very thankful for the mom that we were, we were given, but none of us freely chose who our mom was. That was something that was decided for us. There are things that we choose during the day that we would say, well, I'm free to choose either one, but my choice is dictated by my desire. So if Lauren said, hey, I'm going to take you out for your birthday, you've got two options. You can either go to Longhorn and get a 
sirloin steak that's Parmesan crusted. Or you can have some pineapple pancakes with ranch dressing all over it. I can freely choose whichever one I want. I will always choose the Parmesan-crusted steak. You will never see me freely choose the pineapple pancakes. It's, it's a combination of everything that I hate on that plate. My desires dictate what I choose. And the only way you will ever get me to choose the pineapple pancakes with ranch dressing is if you change my desires. I will never freely choose that. I will always choose what my desires incline me to choose. So when we talk about salvation, our desires lead us to do what we do. And unless God changes those desires, we will continually freely choose not him. You would have to convince me that a large amount of money would be directly deposited into my account for me to ever choose that other plate of food. And at that point, you've changed my desire because now my desire is not a good birthday meal. It's now a chunk of change that you're promising to give me. So yes, I have freedom to choose, but my desire will always dictate what to choose in that setting. I'll never choose this thing that I don't like. You'll never convince me to choose it because I don't like it unless my desire is changed. Unless my desire is changed, I will always, from my perspective, freely choose because I don't see it as a bondage type thing. I am freely choosing what I like. But I cannot change what I like. Anytime I go somewhere where we're having pancakes and syrup, I have to opt out. I can't choose to like those things. Um, think back to Romans chapter 8, God working good for his children. God working good for his children also necessitates that there is limits placed on what man can do. Surely none of us would say that man is free to do whatever he wants, because at that point, man becomes God. He becomes sovereign. If man can do anything and everything that he wants, he is now in control and God is not. For God to say, I can work everything for Jesse and Cortland for good, it necessitates that certain things cannot happen in their life because God has destined them for good. It necessitates certain actions have to happen. Now, the compromise that I originally reached in studying this was, oh, foreknowledge. It's the fact that God knows what's going to happen. He knows who's going to be saved, and so therefore he predestines them or elects them to be saved. The fact that he knows that if they were presented the gospel, they would accept the gospel, and so that's how it works, foreknowledge. But that assumes that God looked into the future and said, wow, everything works out good for all my children, so I can make that promise. I can promise that everything works out good because I looked in the future and we got lucky. Everything does work out good. So it can't be based on foreknowledge. It can't be that we just got the luck of the draw that, wow, if you look into the future, everybody that I wanted to get saved and everything works out for their good. And so my compromise didn't work because it necessitates that God has to be more involved for his plan to play out the way that he desires for it to play out. The reason this doctrine or the reason what Romans 9 talks about causes such concern is because it it has big implications for a desire that we have. We desire for everybody to be saved. 
right? Like, I don't think anybody in here says, nah, I really only want a few people to be saved. Like, we want the nations to come to Christ. And so to to suggest some of the things that, that are contained here in Romans 9 is to suggest that not everybody can be saved. And so we say, well, we want everybody to be saved. And we also see that God wants everybody to be saved. He, he communicates that in his word. He has desires for everybody to be saved. But what we have to admit, and we've already agreed to it, we have to admit that not everybody will be saved. Now, for those that want to highlight more of the free will perspective, what we're saying is, what those people say is, I want people to be saved. God wants people to be saved. He's capable of saving everybody, but he doesn't. So we're left with the question of why. If God wants people to be saved, and God can save everybody, why doesn't he? Same thing for the, the, the more reformed approach. God wants everybody to be saved. God can save everybody, but God doesn't save everybody. Why? So both sides have the same question. Why does God not save everybody if he says he wants everybody to be saved? One end of the spectrum would say, well, God wants them to freely choose him. So he, he gives that choice to man. Rather than saving everybody, he wants people to choose him. And so at that point, man's choice becomes a higher value than everybody being saved. The other side would say, God is interested in his glory. And God sees a more complete way for him to receive glory if not everybody's saved. Both sides have to answer the question, if God could save everybody, why does he not? Both have to answer that question. And I'm going to share with you more of, of where my answer for that question comes from today. In your notes, the greatest purpose of God's plan for salvation, the greatest purpose of God's plan for salvation is that God receive glory, not that man receive salvation. That's hard. That's hard because we're inclined to think the best way for God to get glory is for the most amount of people to be saved, everybody. And yet what we find in Romans chapter 9 is that God says, it's all about my glory, your salvation is just a byproduct of that glory. You're a piece of the puzzle that results in my glory. God says, I've got, I've got a plan that I'm going to accomplish. And it's going to result in my glory. And it's going to result in people that are supposed to be saved, being saved, and making it all the way to glorification. Think about it, even going back from a free will standpoint. We said that we believe that everybody that's supposed to be saved will stay saved. Even that is a violation of the will, right? Like, you're telling me that I can't opt out if I want to? Yeah, I'm saying that you will, not want, you will never want to opt out if you're truly saved. You'll never have the desire to. It'll never come to fruition in your life. So you'll continue to freely choose to follow Christ because the Holy Spirit will never let you desire to go back. Does man choose God? Yeah. Does God choose man? Yeah. We choose based on our desires. And God works in us and through us 
to give us the desires that we need to accomplish his glorious plan. We don't like people encroaching on our idea to choose. We like options. We like the ability or the freedom to choose. I think it's important that we don't become guilty of encroaching on God's right to choose. We want to cling to our right. Well, it's, it's, it's my right. I have, I have the will to do this. I have the freedom to do this. I should be given the choice. And by claiming that, we're stripping the God of the universe from the right to choose. We're saying, I should be the one that gets to choose. I should be the one that's in control of this. I should be the sovereign in this story. God says, you're not the sovereign. I'm the one. I'm the one that has the freedom to choose. Let me explain to you what that looks like. As we work through this, we've got to ask ourselves, can we be satisfied with this type of God? We've got to make sure that we're not trying to create him into an image that he hasn't revealed. It's intense. Chapter 9. Paul's answering what he left off in Romans chapter 3, 3 with, does Jewish faithlessness nullify God's promises? He he had posed this question back in Romans chapter 3. Does Jewish rejection negate all of God's promises? And he, he left that topic, went off on a different tangent. He's coming back now to what about the Jewish unfaithfulness? What about what he says in Romans 4? The father, Abraham, is the father of all who believe. Who are these descendants? Roman numeral 1, Paul's concern. He leaves off on a high note in chapter 8, chapter 9, verse 1. He's got great concern. His concern is that Israel seems lost. Israel seems lost. What he observes is that God's people are not being saved. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul wishes something here that's not theologically possible. But he's he's proposing this wish that he could trade places with the nation of Israel. He says, if possible, I would switch. I would die in their place. I would spend eternity in hell in their place if God would save them. It's not too far different from what Moses says back in Exodus 32, verses 30 through 32. When God is ready to punish them for their wickedness at Mount Sinai, worshiping the the golden calf, Moses says, if you're going to wipe them out, wipe me out too. I don't want to live. I don't want to go on if you're not going to let them go on. Paul says, I'm at a point where I know this isn't possible. I don't think Paul's confused about his theology, but he's saying if it were possible, if it was even open for discussion, I would be open to talking about giving up my salvation for these people. He says, I love my kinsmen. I love my family, and I want them to be saved. He knows that only Christ can be this type of substitute. This is what Christ did for us. 
And so as Christ is working and moving in his life, he has this type of love for others. And even though his righteousness in itself, Paul could never sacrifice himself for these people, he has a desire to. He wants to see them saved that badly. And he's grieved over the fact that they've had great privilege in their life. They're chosen as God's people. These are the privileges that the nation of Israel enjoys. They're God's chosen people. They're privileged. They had God's presence with them, his glory. It encompassed the temple. It encompassed the tabernacle. It encompassed encompassed the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that led them out of Egypt. They had God's presence dwelling with them in the Old Testament. They had God's presence dwelling with them in the New Testament in Christ. Christ came to the Jewish nation. They had his glory. They had covenant relationship with him. They had his revealed will, his law. There was no confusion about what God demanded. There was no situation where a Jewish person was saying, what does this God of the universe want from me? God clearly and effectively communicated it to them. They had the methods of worship, the sacrifice system. They had the patriarchal examples of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We've already said they had Christ who came to them. All the privileges you could ever ask for. Paul says they've rejected it. They've missed it. And I'm grieved over it. If Israel is God's chosen privileged people, why are so few being saved, Paul is asking. Has God's word failed? And are the Gentiles plan B? And think about it, at the time, the church is very young here, so the question could still be asked, is this plan going to work? Are the Gentiles going to stay, or are they going to opt out of this thing too, and we're going to have to go with a plan C? Paul's posing these questions, and he wants to answer these questions authoritatively so that there's no doubt for us today whether we can trust Romans chapter 8. God has made promises. Will he keep those promises? And the way that we find confidence in God keeping his promises is we look to the past to see if God has kept promises previously. And so Paul wants us to understand God has never stopped keeping his promises with his people. So don't mistakenly look at the lack of Jewish salvation and think, eh, this God can be doubted because he doesn't keep his promises. Paul wants us to understand, no, he does keep his promises. You're just not seeing it properly. The implication here, and it's a small implication, it's not the purpose of this chapter, but I think it, it, it warrants stopping and pausing for just a second. Am I concerned about others and God's glory in such a way that it drives me to evangelize? Am I concerned about others and God's glory in such a way that it drives me to evangelize? Do we ache for our kinsmen? You say, who's our kinsmen? Which is also a question worth answering. Who falls into the group of people that you're most burdened for? Because I would venture to say most of us don't have kinsmen that we're that concerned about. Maybe we have a close family relative that we might would say, oh, like that's somebody that I'm really... I'm really aching for. Paul's talking about a national people. Like the correlation would be do we ache for Americans in the same way that Paul aches for Israelites? 
And I don't know that any of us feel that way towards our, our national people like Paul does towards his. And that seems like a, a, a big scale of people, so let's, let's bring it down. Do we ache for the people of Sonoy, who are our tangible kinsmen right here, Americans that live on our doorsteps, do we ache for these people like Paul does? Are we even open to discussing the possibility of sacrificing our salvation for these people? And I would venture to say we're not even close to that type of mindset. Most of us wouldn't think twice if a better opportunity came around job-wise to be up and out of here. So we planted this church here. We planted this church to reach people here, which means we need people here who are committed to the mission here. And we plant it in a place where we can expand that focus to the cities around us, to Griffin, to Fayetteville, to Noonan, to Peachtree City, to give you guys options to live in places where you have more job opportunities so that we can reach these people together. But my fear is, is that we will use this church for the time being and then opt out when something better comes along. And there will be no ties to this community beyond what we have right here in these four walls. Paul says, I ache for these people. And if we don't have a group of people that we're aching for, then we need to stop with verses 1 through 5 and really meditate on that. There's got to be more that we're aching for than, than a, a, a one or two family member type of group. Paul says, I'm willing to give up my salvation for these people. I am so invested in these people. And he's, he's traveling town to town because there's Jewish people town to town, and he's going to the Jewish people first. He aches for their salvation. My question is, where are you going to plant yourself? Where are you going to invest your life because you're so committed to reaching a group of people? Not just finding a church that, that coincides with earthly things that you want to do. You need to find a group of kinsmen to invest your life in. If it's not here, then you need to find it somewhere else. There needs to be a group of people that you ache for and you work until Jesus comes back to see come to Christ. Number two, God's sovereignty. Paul's posed the question, what about the unfaithfulness of Israel? He answers it and shows us God's sovereignty, and he's going to answer it by addressing three, three protests against who God is. The first in your notes there, is God unfaithful? Is God unfaithful? Paul says in verse 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Paul tells us here that God's promises never applied to national Israel, but to spiritual Israel. From a salvation standpoint, his promises were never applied to physical descendants, but spiritual descendants. 
And the first example that, that Paul gives us, he says, not every child that came from Abraham was chosen by God. Abraham's first son, Ishmael, was not rejected. He was not accepted. He was rejected by God. He's not the chosen one. After Isaac, Abraham has more kids. He has it through another concubine, another maid. It's like four or five more. They're not chosen. There's one son that's chosen out of this group, and it's Isaac. And God says, it's part of my plan, and I communicated that plan to you. Paul says God's word stands. He's not unfaithful. He never intended to save all of Abraham's children. The plan is still intact. God is still in control. Nothing has changed. Nothing has been altered. God never intended to save everyone, but he did intend to save some. His plan has always been to save a remnant. It's always been to save a remnant. God's word hasn't failed. Not all those who were descended from Israel belong to Israel. The children of promise are counted as offspring. God's promise to Israel will be completed. We're going to see this more in chapter 11. And I don't know exactly what this looks like, and you guys know my my eschatological stance on this, that I believe God has united Israel with the church, that he's got one people that he's working through. But I'm all for the idea that before Jesus comes back, there is going to be a national revival amongst the Jewish people. That he's not done with them. But by saying that he's not done with them, we're talking about those that are the spiritual children of him. Those that will be saved. So it's not uh, he's not done with national Israel from, from how he uses them on this earth. I believe that's shifted. But that doesn't necessitate that he has to be done saving Jewish people. And I'm totally open to the idea that a national revival amongst these Jewish people where they finally see Jesus as the Messiah will happen before Jesus comes back. But regardless, Paul says, what's supposed to happen with Israel is happening and will happen. Nothing's changed. What God intended to do with Israel is what he is doing with Israel. God has always saved remnants. God works opposite of man's desires in doing that too. Remember, Abraham begged God for Ishmael to be the boy. He begged him. He prayed for him. God, use Ishmael. I love Ishmael. He's my son. Use him as the promised son. God says, I'm not doing it. He's not who I've chosen to be your son for these purposes. We're going we're gonna to get into Jacob and Esau. And, and remember, it was Esau that Isaac wanted to be his boy, right? He's hunted with me. He's fished with me. He's lived outside with me. I love Jacob, but let's be honest. Like We don't have anything in common. So Esau is my boy, Isaac's saying. And I want him to have all the privileges. Even though God had prophesied to him, the older will serve the younger. God told Isaac and Rebekah this. And what we see as it plays out is that Isaac is so convinced that Esau is supposed to be the one that he's disregarding what God has said about Jacob. And when it comes down to the time where he's about to die and it's time to issue out the blessing, bring me my boy, Esau. God always works different than what we would do. He doesn't choose Ishmael. He doesn't choose Esau. He chooses Isaac. He chooses Jacob. 
Paul says he's already highlighted the, the choice of Isaac. Verse 10, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So Paul says, okay, I know how you guys think. You're, you're going to argue, well, of course he didn't choose Ishmael. He didn't come from Rebekah or uh, from Sarah. God had promised that the promised son was going to come from Abraham and Sarah. So it's obvious why he didn't pick Ishmael. He chose the one because there was something special about uh, coming through Abraham and Sarah. So God backs up, or Paul backs up through the Holy Spirit and says, okay, let me give you another scenario. Jacob and Esau, they come from the same mommy and the same daddy. They're twins. And the one that you would expect to be chosen, the older, is not the one that's chosen. The one that had the rights to the birthright, the one that had the rights to all the privileges, was not chosen. So now we're talking about two boys, same mom, same dad. Why does God choose one and not the other? And and we're inclined to say, well, duh, because Jacob was the one that was going to be obedient and Esau was going to be disobedient. That's how our minds work. We use the foreknowledge card and we say, well, look at how the story plays out. Which one would you choose? Obviously, you choose Jacob. He's the one that's obedient. He's not obedient. He's disobedient. And the point where he gets blessed, we don't have anything in the narrative account to say, ah, that's why we got Jacob getting the blessing. No. And look what Paul says. He says, before, or verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Jacob versus Esau. Jacob's chosen to show even with the same mom and dad with nothing to differentiate between them that God's choice is not based on birth. It's not based on behavior. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Why? Why does God choose Jacob and not Esau? We're not told. And I wish we were, because I, I wish I could give you the, the, the big crescendo to this section. Here's why. All we're told is why not. He's not chosen because of his birth. Because not everybody that comes from Abraham is chosen. He's not chosen because of his future behavior because God says the choice, was, the choice was made before they'd ever done anything. Before they'd ever done anything, I had a plan in place for these two boys. We're not told what the criteria is, just what it isn't. 13 is concerning because we don't typically like to read that God loves people and hates people. What does, he, what does it mean by that? The quote from Malachi chapter 1. I think it's important to note this, this love and hatred is not an emotional feeling that God has towards these two boys. The love that God has for Jacob is based on God's decision to work in him. The hate based on Esau's life of disobedience and God's rejection of him. It's not emotional feelings, but action-based responses. 
God makes the statement about these two boys after they're born and after they've lived. It's in Malachi. When we first see this statement show up, it's, it's after these two boys have lived out their lives. God makes a choice with these two individuals, as I'm choosing Jacob over Esau. As they grow up and live out their lives, God obviously loves Jacob and provides for Jacob and blesses Jacob and gives privileges to Jacob, and he obviously brings curses upon Esau. Even though Esau grows up to be the father of the Edomites, they don't have God's special blessing and privileges. He loves one and for all practical purposes hates the other. He brings judgment upon the other for the sin, for the rejection. The implication here is that God is faithful. That's what Paul wants us to take out of verses 6 through 13. God is faithful. God has kept his intended promises by working in some and not in others. God chose to do special things in the life of Jacob, and he chose not to with Esau, and we don't know why. But we know that it's not based on where they were born, and we know it's not based on their future behavior. That's all that God clues us into. Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 1. Verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. These people that end up being saved are born because God does something in them, and we're not told why. 2 Timothy 1.9 who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Why does he save us? Because of his own purpose. We're just not told what the purpose is. We're told that it's for God's purposes, that God has a reason, that God has a plan, but we're not told specifically why he does it this way. We're just told why he why. We're told why he does it and, and what factors didn't play into it. A person's nationality didn't play into it. A person's behavior didn't play into it. Think about the implications if, if what we want to read into the story were true. Oh, God chose Jacob because he's obedient. You can't call that mercy anymore. You can't call that grace anymore. You call that, I owe you. At that point, it goes back to what we talked about, the direct deposit. Hey, I'm going to be obedient in the future, so you choose me because you're going to owe me down the road. Now I'm working for you, and you're paying me back for what I did. And that's not how God works, and that's not how the gospel works, and we've already established that. God graciously gives when we don't deserve. If it was based on behavior, it completely undermines what we know about the gospel that it's completely absent of our works. God says, before these guys were ever born, before they ever did anything good or bad, this plan was in place. Man's protest, number three. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unjust is the next question that we ask about God. Is he unfaithful? No, he's not unfaithful. He's kept every promise that he intended to keep for Israel. We just misunderstood who Israel was. Not big national Israel, but the saved remnant within Israel. 
So the next question Paul poses, well, God must be unjust. He's unjust if he's choosing people and not choosing people to work in their life. There's injustice here. Shouldn't God base his election on the basis of man's morality? Shouldn't he look to the future and see who people are going to end up being and then make choices and decisions based on that? And the reason we, we are inclined to argue that way is because we think Esau deserved something. In our minds, we're thinking, well, why does Jacob get the privilege? What about old Esau? Like if God was doing the same work in him, his life would have turned out differently. And we start to question it and potentially question God's justice because we think, no, Esau deserves something here. God is just in not choosing Esau. Romans 3.23, nobody deserves salvation. We're all guilty before God. We've all gone astray. None of us do good. No, not one. So it's a misunderstanding of justice on our part to think that anybody deserves anything from God. Mercy can never be deserved. Mercy goes against what is deserved. If it's deserved, it's no longer mercy. If God owes us mercy, then it's no longer mercy. He owes us a wage that we've earned. Now think about this. This plays out in Exodus 32. Nation of Israel comes before Mount Sinai. They're waiting on Moses to come back down. They're all sinning. They're all worshiping a golden calf. God comes down, he's angry, he's ready to wipe out everybody. Moses is appealing, no, don't do that, no, don't do that. Moses comes down and says, who's on God's side? The Levites show up and say, we're on God's side. The implication is is that people still said, we're not on God's side. We're going to keep worshiping the calf. The Levites go out and start killing people, and they kill 3,000, but they don't kill everybody. They don't kill everybody. They kill 3,000, and then Moses addressed the rest of them and says, you guys royally screwed up here. I'm going to go see if I can get this fixed with God. Why did God kill the 3,000 that he chose to kill? I don't know. They were just as guilty as the other ones that were spared. We're not told why God killed 3,000 of them and not the rest of them. He would have been very right and just to wipe them all out. The mercy that he extended to the ones that he did did not deserve it. And so he remains just. Because he does what he's supposed to do. And anything that he does outside of that is mercy. And it's not a violation of his mercy to not extend it to everybody. And we're not clued into why he extends mercy to these uh, non-3,000 people, but he does. We're not told why God extends mercy to Jacob and not to Esau, but he does for his purposes. We're told that he doesn't do it based on behavior. We're not told why he does it the way that he does it. Listen to what F.F. Bruce says. He says, if God was compelled to be merciful by some cause outside of himself, meaning if there was some circumstance or some quality that demanded that God be merciful, not only would his mercy be so much the less mercy, but he himself would be so much the less God. If God is required to be merciful to somebody, it's no longer mercy. It takes away from the mercy. It's, I owe you, don't I? Like, you've done something worthy of my mercy. Mercy means you don't deserve this at all. 
which means people that aren't getting it can't cry about it, really, because they don't deserve it either. And that's hard. That's a hard truth for us to wrestle with, but that's what we're seeing here in Romans chapter 9. God's glory is tied to his ability to dispense mercy on whomever he pleases, apart from any constraint outside his own will, says John Piper. Let me read that to you again. God's glory is tied to his ability to dispense mercy on whomever he pleases, apart from any constraint outside his own will. If anything necessitates that God be merciful, it's no longer mercy and he's no longer God in that situation. It's not mercy anymore. God is just and that salvation is based on mercy, not human will or effort. Mercy not earned or deserved. And that's what Paul says here. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is a, this is a really important chapter in Exodus 33, so you're going to want to write this down and make sure that you can reference it back at some point. But Exodus 33, this is where the quote comes from, and this quote is not coming at a point where God's issuing judgment. You would expect this to come from a passage where God's about to kill the 3,000. He says, I'm going to show mercy on whom I'm going to show mercy. I'm going to show compassion on whom I'm going to show compassion. And that's not the case. It happens in the context where, Paul, where uh, Moses asked God for something. Exodus 33, 17, the Lord said to Moses, or let me back up. Uh, verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Please show me who you are. At the base of who you are, that's what I want to see. I want to see your glory. I want to see who you are. And Yahweh responded, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God's saying, you want to know me? You want to understand who I am? It is directly tied to my freedom to show mercy to who I will show mercy and compassion to who I will show compassion. Moses says, show me who you are. Show me yourself in all your glory. God says, I'll show you my goodness. And I'll show that it's tied to the freedom that I have to choose who to show mercy to and who not to. We can't differentiate. We can't separate we can't separate that from who God is in all of his glory. God's plan includes saving the lost and using the lost for his glorious purposes. Back to Romans chapter 9. Paul begins to highlight the purpose of Pharaoh's life. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Here we can talk about Moses versus Pharaoh. Both of these guys are disobedient. Both of these guys are national leaders. One, God softens his heart and uses him for good purposes. The other, God hardens his heart and uses him for God's purposes from an evil standpoint, right? Remember, Moses grew up in Egypt. Bible says that he recognized he was supposed to lead Israel out of slavery. Says that's why he went down and killed that Egyptian. 
He went down to kill the Egyptian, and it says in the New Testament, he hoped that the nation of Israel would respond and follow him. He commits murder, and they don't follow him, and he runs away for 80 years. Pharaoh, national leader. Moses, national leader. God uses one for good purposes, the other he uses for his purposes, but we could call it evil purposes because Pharaoh does nothing but evil to God's people. Why does God use one one way and the other the other way? We're not told, but we're told that God shows mercy to whom he will and he hardens whom he will. God says in Exodus 9, Pharaoh, it's only by my mercy that I'm even letting you be used for my purposes. He says in verse 15, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So while we want to argue, well, why wasn't Pharaoh chosen? God's saying, you should be arguing, why are you even around still? Because I should have wiped you off the face of the earth a long time ago. Same for Esau. Esau can't cry out, why didn't you choose me? It's, why did you even let me grow up? Adam and Eve, why didn't you wipe us off the earth when you said that if we ate this fruit, we would die? Anything that we get beyond death is mercy. Even if it doesn't result in salvation, every breath that we take is mercy. God says, Pharaoh, I'm going to use you while you're around. I ought to just wipe you out, but since you're still here and since I haven't done that, I'm going to use you for my purposes. You have, you have evil desires. I'm going to make sure those evil desires are used for my glory, for my honor. God receives greater glory from Pharaoh by enduring his sin rather than immediately punishing his sin. Implication, God is just. The moment we realize that no one deserves mercy is the moment we cease demanding it for everyone. Let that sink in. The moment we realize that no one deserves mercy is the moment that we cease demanding it for everyone. I told you at the very beginning, it's offensive if you believe that God owes equal opportunity for salvation to everyone. The moment we realize that God owes absolutely nothing to anyone is the moment that we cease demanding mercy, or at least the opportunity for mercy for everyone. Is God unfair? Is God unfair to do things this way? Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul's saying, it sounds like you can't opt out of this. It sounds like if you're supposed to be a vessel of good, then that's what you're going to be. And if you're supposed to be a vessel of bad, that that's what you're going to be. Nobody can resist that. How can you still find fault with somebody? So he's asking the type of questions that we're probably asking right now. Well, then how is anybody at fault for this? If this is their destiny, how can they be held accountable for this? And I hate to tell you that we're not given a good answer. Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, 
in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. How can God still find fault? Paul responds, he's the potter, we're the clay, it's not our right to question. I think it's important to note that God pulls from the same lump of clay, though. God takes the clay and he constructs vessels of honor, vessels of dishonor. What's important to note is that it's the same dishonorable clay. He's pulling sinful individuals. There was nothing of merit in Jacob's life, nothing to merit there in Moses' life. He radically changed these people for his purposes. He answered the prayers that we pray today, change their heart, change their desires, make them different than what they are choosing to be right now. Make them different, God. Because right now, if they're left on their course, left on their path, they will continually continue to be enemies of you. Every single one of us was on a path to be an enemy of God for eternity, and God stepped in and changed it, changed our desires, sent the Holy Spirit to convict us, sent people to communicate the gospel to us. He did the same thing for Jacob. He did the same thing for Moses. He changed them. He took sinful clay and made something good out of it. He took sinful clay that was already sinful and used the sinful clay for his purposes in the form of Pharaoh. He pulls from the same unworthy clay to make vessels of good and use vessels of bad. He doesn't make people sinful. He uses people that are already sinful. God works so that his mercy shines against the backdrop of his wrath. He works so that his mercy shines against the backdrop of his wrath. Paul says, God has done it in such a way that because we see his wrath and what's coming towards those that are not saved, it gives us a greater appreciation for the mercy that he's showing to those that he's showing it to. Look what he says. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? What God has obligated himself to be is glorious, not universalistic. He's obligated himself to be glorious, meaning this plan will bring glory to me. It will not necessarily result in everybody being saved. told you at the very beginning, the purpose of salvation is for God's glory, not man's salvation. Man's salvation is a byproduct of that. Anybody that God chooses to show mercy to It's part of his greater plan to be glorious. God says, I'm glorious when I I show wrath to people that deserve it and then when I don't show wrath to people that deserve it. I get glory both ways. So I'm gonna maximize my glory. I'm gonna maximize my plan for, for glory for me so that everybody can see just how glorious I am by giving people what they deserve and then by not giving some people what they deserve. And how am I going to choose? I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you why I do it this way, and I'm not going to tell you how I determined to do it this way. But it wasn't based on who you are, and it wasn't based on your performance, and it wasn't based on what you could offer me. It was based on my secret plans and purposes. The outrage should not be over God not saving everyone, but God saving anyone. 
what we see is that God is gracious to call all kinds of people throughout the world for his glory. He says, it's not just for the Jewish people, it's for the Gentiles as well. He called us not just from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And we know really that transcends to all tribes, nation, and tongues that will be there one day, worshiping God in heaven for eternity. The implication is that God is fair. He acts according to his character. And then our last note, and we'll move through this real quick, Christ's glory. It all culminates with Christ receiving the glory. It says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the numbers of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So God's pulling together a people that come from both Jews and Gentiles. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith? So you see in your notes there, the Gentile faith, they were saved because in sovereign grace they attained righteousness through faith. They're saved by their faith. But you see the Jewish stumble. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. The Jewish people are lost because in arrogant pride, they pursued righteousness through their works. Notice God doesn't end this passage. Paul doesn't end this passage by saying, the Jewish people are saved because God chose them, and the, the, or the Gentile people are saved because God chose them, and the Jewish people aren't because God didn't choose them. No, he closes it by saying, the Gentiles are saved because they chose me. They responded in faith. The Gentiles are, or the Jews aren't saved because they didn't. They kept working for their righteousness and they never submitted to the Messiah. They had all the privileges. And they said, no, nope, we're busy over here working for our righteousness. Let's kill this guy. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over the plan that God had. And they're held accountable for it. They're held responsible for it. They don't get the right to say, well, this is what you destined for me, God. Of course this is what we were going to do. Of course we were going to stumble. And God says, you're prideful and you're arrogant. And you thought you could work your way to me, and you couldn't. And you stumbled over my son. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Faith in Jesus leads to no shame. It all culminates with Christ being worshipped here at the end. That God's plan is to save people from their sin through Christ. It's our definition of the gospel, but our definition doesn't end there. See, if our definition of the gospel was God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ, then we miss the whole purpose of salvation. I told you the only way to understand Romans 9 is to understand the purpose of salvation. It's God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ, for his glory forever. And God says, I get the maximum amount of glory by being both merciful and wrathful. Wrathful towards people that deserve it, merciful towards people that don't. 
as part of my great plan to glorify myself through Christ as every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, which Paul proclaims back in verse 5 that you can share with your Jehovah's Witness friends that come knocking on your door. Verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Application, believe that the promises of Romans 8 stand because God is completely in control. That's what we see in Romans 9. God is completely in control. His plan will happen. It will happen exactly like he intended. The Jewish people have not messed it up. So you, New Testament Christian, believe in the promises of Romans 8 because they will be fulfilled in your life. God will work good for you, and you will stay saved until the very end. And you will freely choose that because the Holy Spirit is working in you and through you for his good pleasure. That's the promise in Philippians. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you for his good pleasure. You're going to keep on freely choosing it, and you can keep on calling it that you're freely choosing it. But God's the one that's engineering that choice. He's making it to where you'll always choose that and you'll never choose what you don't desire. Second, believe that saving only a remnant shows how sinful sin is and how merciful God is. Believe that in God saving only a remnant, it shows how sinful sin is and how merciful God is. Seeing this this morning should draw us to worship that God would would. Beyond reasons that we don't understand, but it's certainly not because of any value that we offer him. Why are we here on a Sunday morning worshiping Christ for his resurrection when everybody else in Sonoy is sitting at home doing whatever today? I don't know. I don't know why God worked in us and we're here today and they're not. But I know that because of the way he does it, the only one that can be glorified in this is him and not us. Because it's certainly not based on our works and our effort. Not by our human will, not by our human exertion. Last thing, believe that if anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. If anybody is lost, so don't panic and say, well, well, this isn't fair. It isn't fair for people that are going to spend eternity in hell. There's, there's tension here, but the way Scripture presents it is it's their fault. They're held accountable. So believe that if anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. It's a beautiful way that God has constructed this. If you go to hell, it's your fault. If you come to him, it's his. Because he extended mercy to you when you didn't deserve it. People that, that, that buck this truth in, in Romans 9 is because they start to think in hypotheticals. Well, what about the person that I'm sharing the gospel with that says, well, well I want to get saved, but I'm not part of the remnant. I'm not part of the elect, so I can't be saved. That silly foolishness for the fact that we're even having the conversation shows that God is working in your life. So don't dismiss these truths based on hypothetical situations. Well, what about poor Esau who's crying out, God, choose me, God, choose me? He's not. He's not crying that thing out. He doesn't have that desire. He doesn't want to follow Yahweh. He doesn't want to submit to that truth. You don't ever have to worry about somebody coming here and saying, man, I want to be saved. I wish the Holy Spirit was working in me. 
That's why Jesus says, anybody that comes will be saved. I'll never cast anybody away. The truth is, the only ones that are going to come are the ones that God has purposed to work into. And there'll never be somebody that comes that God's not working in. You never have to worry about these hypothetical situations. God is obligated to be glorious. Let's not try to talk him out of that. Let's not try to to defer that and explain it away. Let's take it for what Romans 9 says. Let's be content with how God reveals himself. And let's be thankful for the mercy that he's chosen to extend to us for reasons that we can't fully comprehend and may never fully comprehend. We can trust that God will be glorious as he extends wrath and mercy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for difficult passages because we know that when things are difficult, it means that we grow up and that we mature in our faith. So, Father, I'm thankful that you don't just give us milk all the time, that you give us meat. So, God, in the same way that a baby is weaned off his mother's milk, Father, I pray that you would continue to wean our church off the elementary doctrines so that we can embrace the full counsel of your will, so that we can come worshiping in spirit and in truth. God, I pray that our hearts and minds would be expanded as we contemplate who you are, as we come to realize that we can never comprehend who you are. Father, I pray that we would be submitted to your glory God, I would pray that we would be thankful this morning that you have counteracted our will at times. Because, Father, we know that if you were not working in us, we would have never come to you. And if you were not still working in us, we would walk away from you. That the allurement of this world would be too great. That if we were not sealed with the Holy Spirit, that if our desires had not been radically changed, if we had not been given new hearts with your law written upon them, that we would have absolutely no hope of persevering until Jesus returns. So, Father, we're thankful. We're thankful that when it comes to choice and whose choice is valued, that you stepped in and you made choices. And Father, we thank you for your mercy this morning. And Father, I pray that if there's confusion about Romans 9, that Father, nobody would react the way that I did that freshman year in college. That nobody would walk away angry today and frustrated and and dissatisfied with this presentation of God. That if there's still work that needs to be done, Father, that intentional study would happen in their own life, that intentional conversations would happen with me and with others, Father, it's not my desire to to teach Romans 9 and have people leave here not loving Romans chapter 9. And so, Father, if there's further conversations that need to happen, I pray that those conversations would happen. That you would continue to unite us around your word. And God, I pray that you would break our hearts for a group of people that we can call our kinsmen. God, we don't want to live for ourselves. We want to live for others, as Paul communicates in Philippians, that 
dying would be gain. That if we're going to live, that we're going to live for you. And that we're going to ultimately live for other people. So Father, I pray that we would not be enamored with the things that this world offers and that decisions that we make about where to live and where to invest our time and energy would not be based on desires that we have, but based on desires that you have. So Father, give us a people that we can invest our lives in, whether that's our neighborhood, whether that's a bigger part of our community. God, help us not to be people that just wander this earth, putting ourselves in new environments where we're never broken for the salvation of those around us. God, we want to echo Paul's concern. Father, we want to rest in knowing that you're going to be faithful to save. You're going to be just in your salvation. You're going to be fair in your salvation. We worship you and praise you for that this morning. In Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.